0: Do we trust in the Lord like that He can do this? Um, That He can set the captives free because that's why He came. I don't consider myself to be the most courageous person ever, right? And if I'm able to speak the truth, it's only because of Jesus. It's only because I believe He's real. It's only because I spend time every day in His presence. We have to be willing to lay everything on the line for Christ, trusting that it's worth it more than we can ever possibly imagine. We ought to pray as if everything depended on God, because it does, but work as if everything depended on us. Children are so in tune with God, and it's probably, I don't want to be extreme here, but in a sense, it's a form of child abuse not to allow them to come to the Lord.
1: A big thank you to today's episode sponsor, Christ Medicus Foundation Curo. CMF Curo is an affordable Catholic health and wellness alternative offering a health sharing option, wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic health community rooted in Christ's love. Today we're talking about the exile, and if you have your Bible timeline chart, that's the baby blues, singing the blues in Babylon, and singing the blues also for the uh, northern northern country of Israel as the Assyrians took them into exile. So we're gonna talk about, about exile. What is exile? And are people living in exile today? Well, sister, thank you for coming.
0: It's my joy. Thank you
1: for coming. We're talking about uh, this, this period of the, of the exile, but I wanna know a little bit about your work and what you're doing in Chicago.
0: Yeah. You know, I've been on the west side of Chicago for the better part of 14 years now, and I never thought that that would be where God called me, but he works in mysterious ways. And so I remember the day that I first came through the doors of the mission of Our Lady of the Angels to talk to now Bishop Lombardo about my discernment, and I just felt like this is home. You know, this is home. And so we've been there, and our goal is really to bring Jesus. To the men and women in our neighborhood, the children, the people there. Um, But of course, people have basic needs, right? If you're hungry, if you're freezing, if you don't have a bed to sleep in, it's going to be really hard to be aware that the Lord not only loves you and knows you, but wants to know you and have a relationship with you. And so the basic needs of our people are the kind of surface reason why we're there, but the deeper reason as as Catholics, as followers of St. Francis, as religious, we want to bring Jesus to people, want people to get to heaven.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sure. the goal. Yeah.
0: So people to go to heaven and to be with the Lord forever. And so that's the heart of it. And then, you know, from there, we bring in so many people, or rather God brings in so many people to work with us, mm-hmm. mostly young adults and Catholics from the greater Chicagoland area. And it's been incredible for me to see how, the draw to goodness leads people to truth. Yeah, you know, yeah. so many people may not have a strong relationship with Jesus. Maybe they don't go to mass every Sunday or at all. But by coming to serve and give of themselves, their hearts start to open. And then they're like, wow, those nuns and priests and brothers, they go to mass every day and they go to Eucharistic adoration. And what is that? Mm-hmm. And so the Lord, I think, uses people's desire to give of themselves to bring them into deeper relationship with Him, which has been a huge joy to see.
1: Sure. Well, you know, we're talking about uh, exile, and this exile that that uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, went through had to have been incredibly traumatic. The people that you work with are they do they experience that type of exile where everything now is? different due to circumstances in the family or or moving or their their economic situation?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people, maybe they don't call it exile, but I think most people that we see every day in our neighborhood are kind of in exile. Whether it's a spiritual exile, a material exile, existential exile, there's so many different ways to think of it. I mean, I think about what comes to my mind first is we have the joy of working with a lot of senior citizens in the neighborhood, and many of them are women, and they're great, and great, great, and great, great, great grandparents. And oftentimes, these are the women that are caring for the children because the parents are in prison or in jail. And they have this like tremendous trauma um, I remember there's one woman, I, I couldn't tell you her name, but she really struggles with substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, she's often drawn to Iowa Street, where our mission is, and she'll just kind of hang out on the church steps. This will be maybe once a month, every other month. And one day, an elderly woman pulled up with four small children in the car. And she I she, approached her and I said, well, can I help you? And she said, well, their mother comes around here. And I just wanted to bring them to see their mother. And it broke my heart. And, you know, we've given this lady a drink of water and we've talked to her, but she's, she's in this, this, this world of addiction that's become her exile mm-hmm. so much so that she can't even be present to these four beautiful children that she brought into the world. And so, I mean, the cries are coming out from the heart, even though people can't speak them with their mouths. And it can be incredibly tragic, but there's got to be hope. Sure. You know, there's yeah. got to be hope.
1: So what would you do in that type of situation where you, you meet somebody who is addicted? And I know that a lot of a lot of our friends, you know, even joining us on this show, have relatives who are addicted, you know, with what's going on these days with fentanyl and meth and, and so forth. What is what is your response to someone like that who's experiencing that type of exile due to drugs or substance abuse?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's been incredible, the opportunities to just have a relationship with the men and women that we meet. Oftentimes, the people that we encounter who are addicted, don't really come from the neighborhood. They've come to the neighborhood because we're kind of the great open market for drugs Mm -hmm. in Chicago, you know, but then they have nowhere else to go. And there's one woman I'm thinking of specifically that the sisters have befriended over the years and she just doesn't want to be in it, but she can't help herself. And sometimes she'll come and she's overdosed, right? And other times she's totally fine. She'll always tell the sisters, she'll hold their hand, they'll pray with her and they'll be, she'll be like, I don't want to do this, sister. I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, we just keep praying. We keep praying with her. Um, But that's where you have to be so detached because it's a prison. You know, there's only so much you can do for this person. Um, And then God has to like break through Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. until they can choose to stop and to get help, you can't force them. You can't make them admit themselves to a program. You know, so you kind of are really suffering with them as you see their whole bodies. totally destroyed by the drugs. Yeah, it's really hard.
1: <laughs> that, rem- that reminds me of the exile because when, when Judah went into exile in Babylon, you would think that, well, it's going to be just terrible, absolutely terrible. But when they were up there for 70 years in exile, one of the sad parts was that was that they actually sort of became addicted mm. to exile. Mm. They started to like some of the things of exile. And when 70 years was over, they didn't come back. Mm. They stayed. They stayed there. They assimilated into the culture of, of the Babylonians. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, when you meet people who are really going through a really, really tough time, do they have a place to go back to in their minds? Is there Was there a starting point where they would say, I wish I could go back to where I was when I was, fill in the blank. But now they feel like they're out there and they there isn't a North anymore. There's not a South anymore.
0: Right. You know, a lot of people will say, I wish I didn't do this the first time. You know, and oftentimes when you encounter someone that's struggling with addiction, they didn't just decide I'm gonna be addicted to something, right? right. It was some tragedy in their life, whether it was, um, you know, a relationship that just imploded, or the girlfriend left and took their child, or they feel utterly incapable of providing for their family. Whatever the tragedy is, it's often a tragedy that sets people on trajectory for for addiction. And so, in my own heart, I often think like, where and who from God's church was called to be there in that moment with them, you know, when they were experiencing that tragedy and accompany them because they were alone and they were looking for someone to be present to them, they didn't realize Jesus was always there, mm-hmm. you know. And here we are down the road, and we're trying to be the face of Jesus for these people. And yet, like there had to be an opportunity all those years ago, yeah, you know. And were we there? Were, was the person open to that help, or did they just feel so alone that the only thing that they could turn to was this life that's leading them into this deeper hole of darkness?
1: Wow. Well, you know, I think about. I've never been one to do drugs myself, so I can't speak from firsthand I- experience, but I have been around a number of people who were meth addicts, they were uh, fentanyl, uh, all cocaine, you name it, whatever it might be. And as I, I can think back to one individual, I, I went to a, a hotel to rescue him. And when I saw him in that hotel room, I thought to myself, this is not what you were created for you are imprisoned and that drug addiction really is an exile it really is you know go, going to a place that you were not created for at all and you keep mentioning jesus which i knew you would <laughs> but how how does the lord bring someone back who is locked in a hotel room with needles around them, and they don't have that family in anymore. How does Jesus do that?
0: Well, he's the Lord of life, right? And he wants people to have life. And I think oftentimes Jesus will use a disciple. You know what I mean? Like, you're the person that walks into that room, and who else cared? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think a lot of times when people are caught in these persons, whether it's drug addiction or pornography addiction, any there are so many things people are addicted to. Um, if we're not willing to go into the mess with them and be the face of Jesus, it's going to be really hard. But we know God can work miracles. I mean, and He can literally. And there are stories where He's literally broken through out of nowhere to a person who's been addicted. And it's brought them totally new life. You know, but are we praying enough? Do we trust in the Lord like, that He can do this? Um, that He can set the captives free? Because that's why He came.
1: I, I, I'm with you on that completely. I was just thinking back to a time in, in my own life that, as in the 70s, I know that seems like a long time ago, in the 70s, in the 80s, where where we saw drug addicts delivered. We saw people who were taken from the addictions in their life, and it was like God did just an amazing quick job, you know, in bringing them back to, to himself. And sometimes I think we, we shortchange Jesus a little bit. You know, it's like, well, this is going to be a long process, you know, to get you back to the, to the homeland from exile. But God is able right. to do this in someone's life. And if we, we need to believe, we need to pray. And I, I know that the Lord can do that. Absolutely. Do you see that?
0: Absolutely. I mean, and this is why the prayer is the foundation, Jeff. Like, if we don't pray, if we don't grow and beg him, Lord, increase my faith, you know, then it becomes a sociological exercise. Like, well, this person's been addicted for this many years, and so they're going to need this kind of treatment. It's like, well, how do I even know? Do I even know that person? Do I even know their name or their story? You know, and like, we're talking about the story of salvation. It's like every single one of us is part of that story. But do we even realize it? and the grace and the glory of God that can happen through the transformation that he's working in hearts. Um, I don't know if we do, because I think we'd see different, I think we'd see a different experience and a different situation, especially in some of our big cities, if we really believed. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about assimilation because the, the assimilation was one of the major problems of the exile. They went from Jerusalem, They went into Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem was destroyed. All the landmarks are gone, you know? And there they are in Babylonian captivity. And during that 70 years, they start to assimilate. And I think about uh, the Christians that I've known in the past, not, not all of them obviously, but some, where they were so on fire for the Lord that you would think, wow, God is just God is doing a great job in their life, and they're they're so on fire. But over time, they started to assimilate mm-hmm. into the culture, and that took the fire. That took the fire away. Talk to me a little bit about assimilation and, and uh, uh, what you see in the work that you're doing.
0: Yeah, you know, I think this is such an important thing to consider. I mean, even think about my own life. You know, I've Always walk with the Lord. I've always been Catholic. I've always gone to mass. I mean, but I remember in my young adult years how desperately I wanted to fit in, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would choose to dress in ways I probably shouldn't have dressed, and I would choose to behave in ways I probably wasn't proud of behaving in because I thought if I don't do that, then I won't be part of this thing that I think I want to be a part of. Um, and so there's a lot of deception that goes on because we're trying to find our identity, right? And our identity is in the Lord. Like Jesus reveals to us the face of God. And if we're made in the image of God and Jesus reveals the face of God, then he's got something to tell us about our identity. Um, you know, the thing that's really not blowing my mind, but probably deeply troubling me now more than anything is the way that the culture is kind of has its clutches on our children, especially our small children. So I have the joy of teaching in a small Catholic school in the city, and I teach the smallest children K through four. Um, and this really hit home to me in the fall. I was with the kids, we were on the carpet, we were talking about Jesus as two natures, divine and human, you know? And we are talking about the second coming, and of course, why wouldn't we talk about that with eight-year-olds? But this little girl raises her hand and she says, Sister what if Jesus came back as a girl? And I said, oh, what do you mean Jesus came back as a girl? I said, you know, like a gender swap. I was like, oh, what do you mean a gender K swap? K through four. She's a third grader. You know? And so we explored. And she said, well, you know, there's those TV shows where people have gender swaps and a boy becomes a girl. And I just looked at her dead in the face. I said, I just want you to know that that's not true. God makes us to be boys or girls. And Jesus is a man. And when he comes back, he will be a man, you know, and she didn't ask any more questions. But this is what she's immersed in. And this is I mean, when we're talking about the kind of school where I teach, our children don't have as much exposure to stuff. But there's the Internet and there's TV, you know, and I think parents. Perhaps aren't aware of the things our children are kind of consuming. They think, oh, it's just a funny TV show. It's like that is not just a funny TV show. That is like getting deep into their minds and their hearts and like distorting the truth of who they are. That's really terrifying.
1: Well, you, that's that's really powerful because anybody who is in exile, whether it's beyond your circumstances or this is the result of you in disobedience, and you're experiencing this this exile, in the midst of it, you're going to have all kinds of influences vying for your heart to say things like that, you know, about gender swap and so forth. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of it, then, you have people like you who are saying, no, let me tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing we know, sister, and that is Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, if you know the truth, the truth will set. You, free. And so all of these people who are being held in a sort of an exile uh, in their life are in desperate need of the truth. Now, you're a sister. So somebody, somebody might say, well, sister, you're a sister. I mean, look at you. You're not assimilating into the culture, are you? And, uh, and of course, you would say this because you're a sister. What would you say to, the, to them? You know, the, all of our, of our friends who are saying, well, I don't know if I could say something like that. Is it the habit that allows you to say that, or is it just the truth?
0: <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I don't consider myself to be the most courageous person ever, right? And if I'm able to speak the truth, it's only because of Jesus. It's only because I believe He's real. It's only because I spend time every day in His presence, the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, that I allow myself to enter into communion with Him. and I'm a sinner. Like I'm a sinner too, like everybody else. But, but here's the thing. Like if we don't speak the truth, I mean, what happens? Mm -hmm. It's like that lobster in the pot and you just turn it up higher and higher and higher. And then you lose your tradition. You lose your culture. You lose yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think we need to lead with a message of love and mercy, but truth and charity is also part of the gospel. Yeah.
1: It's so hard for people, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's very hard because you feel like you are standing against the culture. Mm -hmm. And there's even the fear of being
0: canceled. Absolutely. You know,
1: man, I could could lose so much if I really stood for the truth. It reminds me of what Paul faced. Mm -hmm. You know, when Paul came on the scene, or when Jesus came on the scene, you had Caesar Augustus. uh, And the whole world was worshiping Caesar. And Caesar was considered the God-man, the son of Julius Caesar, you know, the the son of God. And he was the one who ushered in the the peace, Pax Romana. And he's the one who ushered in the euangelion, the good news for the world. So you've got the whole world who is worshiping Caesar, who is the prince of peace, and the one who brought in the good news for the world. And in the midst of that, someone's born in Bethlehem the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the one who's bringing in the good news for the world. And that's the culture that Paul ran straight into, and he had to make a decision. Am I just going to assimilate, blend in, or am I gonna speak the truth in love, no matter what happens to me? And that's the difference between Paul and many of us today, is that we're not willing to pay that price for truth. And as a result, we lose the battle, we lose, our, we lose our children. You know what I'm praying for? I'm praying for a, a revival. I'm praying for a, perhaps even a Eucharistic <laughs> revival. Is, do you think that's, you think, you think that's <laughs> Funny, possible? You
0: Uh, Jeff, absolutely. I mean, here we are, and we're kind of in the midst of this Eucharistic revival that our bishops have discerned that I am convicted the Holy Spirit has inspired. As a matter of fact, the Carmel and Displains also wrote that to me once. They said, Sister, we are sure this is a work of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, Jeff, the thing is, is that we are all on our own cowards. Without Christ, we are cowards. And there are so many second things that are unsettled, not just in the world. Let's be honest, the church too. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of division in our church. And I sincerely believe that until we can all fix our gaze on Christ in the Eucharist, come back to that worship, that first love, Mm -hmm. like Revelation kind of first love, Until we can do that, all these second things are going to be the sideshows and the tragedies that we're constantly ebbing and flowing in and out of. But with our eyes on Christ, He can do the heart work that's going to help us to stand strong and also to help heal the wounds and the divisions, not just in the world, in the church first, among the body of Christ. And we need that desperately. You know, it's just, what did He say in John 17? As much as you are united with one another, they're going to believe. Mm-hmm. But the more we're dis- dissolved, divisive, divided, yeah. the harder it will be for us to stand as witnesses to Christ.
1: C.S. Lewis one time said, basically, said, Lord, I don't know why you allowed the world to judge whether you are based on our relationship with each other. <laughs> you took a big risk there, Lord. You really put it on the, on the line there. Well, mm-hmm. this Eucharistic revival, the, the, uh, the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago, you're playing a role, aren't you?
0: You know, I've been so privileged too. Yeah, it's it's been tremendous. Um, so right now, I serve on the executive team. Of mostly dedicated lay people that are helping the bishops to incarnate and animate this across the country. All of our bishops, in their own ways, are bringing it to the local churches, the dioceses. We're getting ready to enter into the parish year, so I think your, uh, those who are watching the show will be hearing much more about it in the days and the weeks and the months to come. But what we're looking for is for people to allow their hearts to be touched by Jesus in the Eucharist, that the real revival begins in every heart. And from there, we get sent on mission. So it's that encounter with Jesus, that, the true living Jesus Christ, present in the Eucharist, who gives himself to us at every Mass, remains with us in the tabernacle and the monstrance and adoration. But then we go on mission with Jesus. And if we know that we're with Jesus, then it's not going to be terrifying to speak the truth, in the face of tremendous opposition. Mm-hmm. And remember like in the early church what were the two pillars? Baptism and martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Okay? And like as a religious we kind of stand in the crossroads. You know, in the great documents of the church religious life is often talked about right after martyrdom. But the depth of that is we're going to be witnesses, right? We have to be willing to lay everything on the line for Christ, right. trusting that it's worth it more than we could ever possibly imagine. Yeah
1: what can people do to be a part of bringing people back?
0: We ought to pray as if everything depended on God, because it does, but work as if everything depended on us. And I think when we consider the tragedy of children who've left the faith, which I've heard so many mothers and fathers Mm -hmm. share these stories, um, we can think about the image of a light going on in a room. Right. So you have those really sweet lights nowadays that have uh, you can make the light go slowly up and slowly down Mm -hmm. or you can flash it on and off. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes in our zeal to bring the children back, we turn the light on really quick and we drive them away. (laughs) But we're kind of in a moment in history where we need to take advantage of the dimmer. And the first stage of that light going on is you loving them as they are. Not accepting bad choices or lifestyles that you're not in agreement with, but loving that child. Be interested in what they're interested in. Attend to who be interested, because they, they still like they still are your child. You've given them to God, but they're still your child. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's the first step, Jeff. Instead of being like, why don't you go to Mass? Or, you know, all these things that we can come up with to try to get our kids to go to Jesus. It's like, well, you need to be Jesus for them first. Because they're not interested in Him right now for whatever reason. And then as we kind of rebuild and have the Lord lead us through a restoration in that relationship, the door is going to open, right? The door is going to open. But if we try so forcefully to bring them back, we're just driving them away.
1: Like two or three weeks ago, I told someone, they were asking the question, What do I do to bring back my loved ones who are in exile? And almost the same thing came out of my mouth. And I I said, Well, first of all, they don't need a big apologetic dose. You know, they don't need to know they're going to hell. They don't need to, you know, be taught all this theology. They need to be loved. And I actually used the word dimmer. No. (laughs) I, I did. I said, Tone it
0: Ben's down. Come Holy I said,
1: Tone it down and love them and bring them in. A big flashlight in your face is never a warm, a warm type of type of thing. And you said, start with where they are at. Right. The brokenness. And Jesus meets us in the brokenness of our life. He doesn't yell to us from the mountain and say, "Hey, I see you down there." <laughs> he comes and he joins you in the brokenness. What about these kids that you? that you teach and their families, what kind of brokenness does Jesus meet them at?
0: You know, it's such a beautiful question. I mean, beautiful because it's real, not because we like people to be broken, but it's real. Um, And I'm just thinking about this experience I had um, with some of our younger students, and we were gonna make cards, thank you cards, to people that were blessings to us who were learning about the Beatitudes. And so I thought, you know, instead of just doing like an intellectual exercise in thinking about it a blessing. Let's ask the Holy Spirit. You know, so they're all sitting on the carpet, and we did, I did a little invocation to the Holy Spirit, and we sat in silence for probably a minute, we did a little bit more prayer, all the children opened their eyes, and this one little girl was like, tears streaming down her face, you know. And I said, are you okay? And she's just like, she's a very like, little girl. So she goes to her seat, everybody gets settled, and I go over. And I said, are you okay? Why are you crying? And she goes on to share with me about, effectively, the loss of her father. You know, what's going on in their home. Yet, she encountered Jesus in her suffering, in that prayer. He touched her heart. You know? And I know that that's true because a few weeks later, she said, please pray for my dad.
1: He really needs it. Wow. You know? Yeah.
0: And so... If we don't introduce our children to Jesus, if we don't bring them to the church, if we don't give them the privilege of receiving the sacraments, we're doing them no favor. Right. We're not doing them any favor. And so we must lean on Jesus and on the treasures of our faith. Mm-hmm. They're treasures.
1: Wow. Okay, I want to ask you about the habit. <laughs> uh, because, and you know, a lot of people who tune in, they search the internet, and all of a sudden they've got this. This guy talking to this sister, to this, you know, and a lot of people ask. Well, I know that means you're a sister, but what else does this mean? You're clearly not assimilating <laughs> in in exile. You know, you're you're kind of speaking boldly, in, even in how you're dressed. Talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I'm a Franciscan, mm-hmm. Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago. St. Saint, Saint Francis of Assisi is probably one of the most popular saints, effectively. And so the habit that I wear is modeled after the original habits of the friars and the poor Claire nuns. And so St. Francis wanted the tunic to be very simple and in the shape of a cross. Mm-hmm. So when I stretched my hands out, it's basically a shape of a cross. If it was the men's habit with the hood, it would look even more so, because Jesus invites us every day to take up our cross and follow him, right? And as consecrated, men and women, making those vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, were really living the evangelical gospel life, but in a more radical way.
1: What does that mean, the evangelical?
0: Evangelical, meaning like living life the way Jesus lived. Okay. Jesus was poor. He didn't have a place to rest his head. Jesus was chaste. He chose not to live a married life to be a radical sign to the kingdom and celibacy. And he was obedient unto death on the cross right? Um, And certainly we hope that nobody dies because they're religious. But we have to be willing to die to ourselves, like all Catholics, all Christians. But we're supposed to be a sign to the rest of the church that it's possible to live this way. Now, that's a tall order. Sure. Right? It's a very tall order. So part of the reason why we wear the habit is to remind ourselves and to be a sign to the world. Um, The cross I wear is the San Domino cross that spoke to St. Francis, yeah, right Francis, rebuild my church, as you see it's falling into not the buildings, which started with buildings, but God's people. And then for women religious, we wear the veil as a reminder that we belong to Christ exclusively. So one way to say that would be that we are brides of Christ. Um, in our rosary, we chose the crucifix that was special to St. John Paul II because in our religious community, um, the friars and sisters work together in the apostolate and share our life together, as much as that is, is good for us, through prayers together, meals together. We have our own separate houses to be appropriate there, but living that fraternal life with sisters and brothers is very beautiful.
1: Is We can talk about the exile. Now let's go down to street level. It's kind of like Google Maps. You know, you can go up and look at the whole country, or you can go down into West Chicago. Yeah. This is where it's happening. You're experiencing people who are experiencing exile and you're wandering around in the middle of it and you have a habit that says something, what do people say when they come up to you?
0: People say, um, can you pray with me? Really? Right. Or, um, can I give you some food? I'm hungry. Um, or they ask you how you're doing, or you'd be, I hope not surprised, but just really moved by how many people say, sister, thank you from the car, you know, because they know that At our mission, we have food and we help people. And as a matter of fact, you know, just to kind of like pull that camera out as far as like the radical sign, in our neighborhood, no one does anything to our buildings. They've never broken into any of our cars. Because even people who are involved in the world of crime know a sign of goodness and they respect that. And that says something about the human person that we innately are good. People make bad choices, but there's no bad people. And I really want to drive that home because it pains my heart when I hear somebody say, you're a bad boy or you're a bad child. There's no bad child. There's no bad boy. We might make bad choices, but we are always good because we are made in the image likeness of our Father. That's
1: beautiful. That's something that, uh, that, that particularly young people, I think they need to hear because... Culture is telling them that you are bad. Others are saying that you are bad. They might have even heard it from mom or dad that, that I am bad. And that brings me to this, this issue of identity. In Matthew 4, when Jesus went up in Matthew 3 from the waters of baptism out into the wilderness, he was tested three times by the enemy. And all three times, what was, what was, uh, what was the, the aim or the goal of the enemy was to challenge Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, then, then turn this rock into bread. You know, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, uh, to quote Psalm 91. And if you are the Son of God, fall down and worship me. I'll give you everything. And so it seemed to be the point of attack is Jesus' identity. And with young people today, and I'm going to turn you loose on this in a second. Identity yeah. is what's being attacked.
0: Absolutely.
1: How do young people survive exile and not know who they are?
0: Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is from the Psalms. It's that cry. It is your face, O Lord, I seek. Hide not your face. Dism- nis- dismiss not your servant in anger. It is for you I have borne insult." You know, and when we think about our children, like even if they can't cry that cry, that is their cry. They're seeking the face of the Lord. And if we're in the midst of a culture that wants to totally dismantle the identity of the human person, the only way to respond to that is by going to the source of our identity. Right? And so I've really I thought about this and I've prayed about this. and, And in the most mysterious way, when you go to Eucharistic adoration or you go to Mass and the priest elevates that host we're gazing upon the face of God, hidden, mysterious, and yet we're gazing upon the face of God. And so if Jesus could make himself so humble and vulnerable to always be with us in that mysterious way, then I believe that there is a profound opportunity for us to have restoration and anchoring in our identity through the Eucharist. And no matter how old the child has been, any time I brought a child, to the Eucharist, there's been a profound response. Even during COVID, we couldn't even leave the classroom. Uh, The Lord totally inspired the whole thing. I had virtual adoration from Singapore in kindergarten. I told the kids we're about to do adoration. We talked about the Eucharist. We're going through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius with kindergarten. It was awesome. And I said, in a moment, it's really Jesus. You'll know that this is live stream because the candle will be moving. And I said, You can sit, you can kneel, but we're gonna be quiet for just a few minutes. And in that classroom, with all those masks on and all those little kindergartners, they all dropped to their knees and they were all silent, and some had their heads on the floor. And, you know, we ended our time of prayer, and I just asked them, and one child after another, What would you wanna to say to Jesus? Jesus, I love you. Jesus, thank you. It's so beautiful. And that was virtual adoration. I mean, like, children are so in tune with God and it's probably i don't want to be extreme here but in a sense it's a form of child abuse not to allow them to come to the lord
1: i i, I love what you're doing because you are in i guess you could say you're letting you're you're letting jesus do his thing <laughs> and we're living in an age sister you know we have to figure it all out we got to have formulas we have to have steps we five steps to world whatever you know and we're, we're living in a world where you have to have steps, you have to do this, you got to have exact formula. And you're saying, people in exile, let me introduce you to Jesus. Yes. And, and Jesus can deal with that. Jesus can draw people. And we forget that, don't we? That, that God is God and God can work in the hearts of not only kids but, but adults if we would but bring them. CMF Curo is a Catholic health and wellness alternative for individuals and families that offers what modern health care is missing. Curo offers an affordable and faithful Catholic alternative to the impersonal experience so many people confront when they need health care. Curo is fueled by the belief that each person is an unrepeatable gift from God, This belief informs its whole-person holistic approach to its health and wellness program. Curo provides personalized wellness coaching, spiritual direction, small group studies, Catholic community, and a Christ-centered healthcare sharing option. As you consider your health care needs this year, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining and learning more at cmfcuro.org. That's cmfcuro.org. Every show, we ask our guests some questions about the Bible, because this is the Bible Timeline show. Show me your Bible, okay?
0: Well, this is my Bible, and uh, my friend Mary got it for me when I was going on pilgrimage, Um, Gosh, at least seven or eight years ago. So I've been using it ever since I went on this pilgrimage to France. I wanted something that I could carry with me because um, probably my most well-loved professor from when I studied at the seminary, um, alongside the seminarians not to be a priest, um, he said to us once that you should never be less than an arm's length away from your Bible. So I wanted to be able to carry my Bible with me always so this can actually fit in my pocket. Um, so I've been carried with me. And so, you know, I, there's only one place in my Bible where I've marked, and it's Isaiah 43, because the words from Isaiah 43 really speak to my heart.
1: That's beautiful. Not everybody marks in their Bible. I'm not saying you have to mark mm-hmm. in your Bible. Now, why did you mark those particular ones, those verses?
0: Well, you know, he says here, Isaiah says to us, really, he's speaking the words of God. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Remember not the former things, nor the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it?
1: I love it. I love it, it too. It. That's marked up in mind too. I always go back to it. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then you know, my Bible, so I I pray with the I pray with scripture essentially every day. Sometimes mm-hmm the mass readings, but sometimes the Lord will just put a scripture on my heart Mm -hmm. and I go to it and I read it and I pray with it. And also it's kind of like, it's becoming a little bit of my community of saints because I have like St. Therese in here. I have holy cards of priest friends that have been ordained. People that I love who've passed away are in here. So it's almost like yeah. All of Salvation History and all my people are here with me.
1: I love it. One of my Bibles, uh, I don't have it with me uh, here today, but one of my Bibles has in the front, you know, they ha- they usually have a couple of blank pages up in the front. And I wrote down clear back in the 80s, uh, when our first daughter was born, I wrote down, Emily came home from work today. And the time and uh, she felt contractions, and uh, the whole page is this diary of. Yeah. At the end, Carly was born at one something in the morning, mm-hmm. and I look back now about some of these highlights of my life, and they're written right there, mm-hmm. in in my Bible. So it really becomes a very personal, mm-hmm. a personal thing, and uh, and I like the fact that you have a small one that you can take with us. Do you have any favorite verses in the Bible?
0: Um, you know, one of my favorite verses, I believe, is from Matthew eleven. Right, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor, love it. and I will give you rest. I love that. I also love the vine and branches in John 15. Mm -hmm. Um, Just that, abide with me, remain with me. And then John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus speaking to his Father and praying not only for those who are here with me now, but all those who will believe because of their word, that we all may be one. Myself and Sister Kate actually chose that for the gospel at our final vows. Mass—it mm-hmm. means so much to me personally, just that desire for communion and for unity in our church and with our Lord. Um, and I really love Genesis one through three. I do it too. I do <laughs> so too. I yeah. Genesis one through three. Um, yeah, just especially just the image of God and like who God created man and who He created woman to be. Yes. Yeah. And how yeah, like Genesis. if you keep going back to Genesis one and two, like every time. There's something deeper that we discover, and we're not as far from the garden as we think. Mm-hmm. When you go back to the garden, like, Jesus actually doesn't want us to go back. He wants us to go forward, mm-hmm. you know, to the new Jerusalem. But, like, who is to say the new Jerusalem doesn't have the garden, too?
1: Yeah. that, Genesis 1 through 3, you and I are a lot alike, because that's, I, I've spent more in those three chapters than almost anywhere mm-hmm. in the Bible. Okay, one last question. A character in the that you most identify with?
0: <laughs> Character in the Bible that I most identify with? Gosh. You know, it's hard for me to explain, but like, as you say that, really who I think of is Peter, and he just has this battle. You know what I mean? like, I mean, he basically goes back to fishing four times before he actually starts following Jesus, I think, if I'm correct. right? But then Jesus like dies and rises from the dead, and he goes back to fish again, and it's like, how thick are you, Peter?" (laughs) You know? And I feel like, especially when I knew the Lord was calling me to religious life, I mean, I know it wasn't, like, the lifetime-long battle, but for about a year or so, I was just fighting, like, you really want this, Lord? Are you sure? you're? Because I can do all these other cool things for you. And as a matter of fact, let me do these cool things for you and prove to you that this is way better than this plan, like, you know? (laughs) And then finally, it was just, like, this, I mean, literally God breaking through, like, Literally, I'm sitting there next to my best friend that I kind of wanted to marry, and I had just been up to the Adoration Chapel, and I was begging for one final sign, which I had already had 500 final signs. And out of nowhere, we're like editing footage from this trip we took to Auschwitz Mm. to make a documentary. And I just look at this guy, and I'm like, I think God wants me to be a novice. And he knew it too, you know? And he said, really? And I said, yeah. And he just hung his head, and that was the end of the story. You know, so God breaks through just like for Peter, he broke through for me. And so, and he took this man who is so small in the eyes of the world. And I feel that way too. I'm so small. I don't have that much. Um, but if we just give what we have, which is really ourselves to God, he can do great things. And it's, that's, the, that's the, the key is he can do great things.
1: You know, did did Edith Stein have anything to do? You went over to Auschwitz? Did you? You know,
0: we went over there for Maximilian Kolbe. Okay. Actually, so we were, we um our original idea was to film something about J.P. Two and his impact on our generation, but the story that we found was Maximilian Kolbe, and so we did a short on St. Maximilian Kolbe. It's powerful, isn't it, at, mm-hmm. at Auschwitz?
1: So Sister Alicia and I are gonna. Uh, answer some of your questions that have been submitted regarding this period of of the exile. And we have a question from Beth. Thank you, Beth. She asks, what happened to the Samaritan people? When we talk about Jews, are the Samaritan people included in that group, or did they just disappear from history, who are the Samaritans? Who are the Samaritans? Well, you know, in this baby blue period of uh, of uh, the north going into uh, Assyrian exile, if you will, the Assyrians came down and they took those ten tribes. They destroyed many of the people, brought many of the uh, the northern ten kingdoms out to three other areas. But here's here's the the the. I guess the logic of the Assyrians is they brought five, count them, five other conquered people, they brought them and into the north and mixed them with the remnant in the north. This took place in 722 BC. So you have a destroyed people in the north, five other nations are brought, and they're mixed with that remnant. This becomes the this becomes the beginning of what we know as the samaritans
0: you know but it makes me think of that amazing encounter Mm -hmm. that jesus has when he's going through samaria yes the woman at the well and we can think about her because she in a sense really represents what the lost tribes are experiencing totally how jesus brings her back to her identity and Mm -hmm. then she becomes a disciple
1: totally in fact it's so cool it's so cool cool is a is hebrew for neat Get a little Hebrew in there in this to show. But it's so cool because what you have is, okay, in the north, in the north, two prophets speak to the north, Hosea and Amos. And Hosea's message to the north is over and over. It's this. God is your husband. You've been unfaithful. You're going to go into exile, but I won't forget you. I'll come to you in the desert, and I'll give you refreshing water. Fast forward to the gospel, the the gospel and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus walks right into Samaria. Mm -hmm. He walks right into Samaria. He speaks to a woman. And what happens is that he ends up giving her this refreshing water. In other words, God kept his word. He came back Mm -hmm. and he said to her, this is so cool. Go get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right. You've had, remember that five, the five that were brought down earlier and mixed with the north? And the one that you're with is not your husband. And she was like blown away. And Jesus really, he reveals who he is. She goes and tells everybody, you know. So you're right, that's the best example. The woman at the well. Wow, that's good. David writes this, uh, well, this is a good one. Why is God called the God of hosts in the Old Testament? I've always heard it in mass, but I'm unsure what it means. Now, I gotta, I gotta tell you something, sister. When uh, I was growing up, I heard the word host. Now, that's not what we're talking about here, the Lord of hosts, but I heard that word host. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm-hmm. That shows you how poorly formed I was. I thought, now that you can't laugh, but I thought that host meant that Mass was like a dinner and Jesus was the host. Oh, wow. That's what I thought. <laughs>
0: That's very interesting. That's what I thought.
1: And I thought, well, he's the host, you know. But host means, it's from the word hostia, which means victim. and uh, But in this situation here... The, the term Lord of hosts uh, it occurs over 600 or 260 times just in the Old Testament and uh, in the Old Testament God is first called the Lord of hosts in first Samuel chapter 1 and verse 3 and the word Lord if you notice in your Bible that it's all capitalized that refers to to what's called in in, in you know theological circles, the tetragrammaton, the tetragrammaton is four letters in Hebrew. It's yud he vav He, four letters, and that's where we get the word yud he vav He Yahweh, Yahweh. Now, be respectful when you say that. If you are around Jewish people, particularly the Orthodox. They don't appreciate people just saying that word in a real flippant, you know, casual uh, way. And so we too, as Catholics, we have great respect for that name. The word Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And oftentimes that refers to uh, the heavenly ent- entities, the angels, those who are uh, uh, in heaven. The, the hosts of heaven. He is the Lord of hosts. And the Hebrew word for that is Sabaoth. And we've heard that before in the liturgy. We hear about the saba, Sabaoth, meaning armies. He is the Lord of the armies, the angelic forces. That's not a, that's not a, um, a little title, Lord of hosts. And if you're in trouble, and you're struggling in your life right now, and you feel like you're in exile or you got children in exile, call on the Lord of hosts to come and and intervene. And I imagine the sisters that you're with and in your own life, you're very cognizant of the angelic hosts in your own life.
0: Absolutely. And I was just thinking, too, it's such a great even phrase, Lord of hosts, to really let kind of wash over our hearts when we're at mass. Because the mass is the closest we can be to heaven on earth, Mm -hmm. right? And to allow ourselves, not just to imagine, but to realize we literally are surrounded by the hosts of heaven at every Mass and the entire communion of saints. It's not just like if it's daily Mass and there's five people in the church, like that church is packed, okay, to the rafters with the communion That's a of point. saints That's a great and point. the angels. Yeah. Um, so there are angels among us everywhere. I
1: love that. You know, Next time you're in Mass, you go to daily Mass, you go to daily Mass, <laughs> you go to daily Mass and there's only six of you there and someone says, why isn't, why isn't this place packed? You can say, as sister said, oh it is. I see something you don't see, and it's
0: powerful.
1: It's powerful.
0: It is powerful.
1: Michael the archangel, defend
0: us (laughs) in in
1: battle. And that's a good thing for us to remember, sister, you know, is uh, that whatever we're facing in life, especially with the exiles in our family, call on the Lord of hosts.
0: Absolutely.
1: Call on the Lord of hosts. Question number four from Ben. Do we have any Old Testament persons who became saints? If not, why? Now, that question, I was in the process of coming back into the church. And I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And my my mentor, Bishop Paul Dudley, just what a man. Uh, I was with him in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I was talking to another guy, uh, Monsignor Macanini was his name. All my friends from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, you know who I'm talking about. He was like a legend there. And I asked him that question. I said, uh, Monsignor, I get it. St. Luke, St. Paul, St. Matthew, you know, St. Augusta. I get all that. But what about the Old Testament people? Are they saints? And he says, come with me. Because I said to him, why don't we talk to him? And he says, come with me. And he got in the car and we drove over to, I think it was Augustana College in Sioux Falls. And out in front, there's a great big statue of Moses. And we walked over and he did this for, to make me think. We stood there and he said, he said, Moses, pray for us. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he said, just because someone doesn't have that name, Saint, in front of them in the Old Testament does not mean that they are not with the Lord. In fact, in the liturgy, in the litany of the saints, we call upon these Old Testament heroes, pray for us, right? We f- we focus on the New Testament saints, but that doesn't mean, and the Catechism talks to us about this, and so did St. Uh, John Paul II, that that doesn't mean that they aren't saints mm-hmm. and part of our life and part of our, of our uh, family. Did you think of that ever?
0: You yeah, know? you know, it makes me think, first of all, I think in the Eastern church, they, they do revere some of the mm-hmm. Old Testament figures as saints You're right? Um, in the Eastern churches. And then also some of our friends might have had the joy of, you know, during the sacred triduum on Holy Saturday, we don't have mass. But we have the Office of Reading. This is an ancient text that we read every Holy Saturday from an anonymous writer from the most ancient times of the Church, and. He gives us these images of Jesus going down, descending into hell, into kind of this limbo where all these people have been waiting for the resurrection, pulling Adam out and pulling you out and taking them with him to heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I always love to think of that image of all of the patriarchs and the prophets and those who are waiting and waiting and Jesus bringing them up with him, you know, as part of the glory of the resurrection.
1: And the transfiguration. You have Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. In. So that's a good question. That was, that's a very good question. I love it. We have a question from Anonymous. What language is that? How can you tell who is a false prophet and who is a true prophet? I'm wondering how they figured this out in the Old Testament, but also how we can know who to trust in today's world. That's that's really good because uh, people are looking for two things these days, aren't they? They're, they're looking for... Uh, someone to trust, and they're looking for a brighter future. And there's, sister, there's so many voices out there right now on TV and the internet, walk this way, do this, buy that, think about these things. And that's a good question of who do you, who do you ultimately trust, you know? And in the Old Testament, uh, it, was, it was pretty easy. I mean, the prophets of Israel were very different than the Canaanite prophets. The Canaanite prophets would, you'd go to a Canaanite prophet, kind of like an oracle, like Oracle of Delphi, and you'd ask a question, and the Canaanite prophets would look at a liver from an animal and study it, you know, and there could be a lot of different interpretations. And usually the answer was a little bit ambiguous, you know, it was like, "Mm, yes, for the most part. But the prophets of Israel, they didn't look at livers and and water and so forth. What they did was they confirmed the Word of God and they challenged the people to do the Word of God. And there were those prophets who uh, not only confirmed the Word of God, but they did say something about the future, that this will happen. Like Isaiah talking about, you'll be in exile for 70 years. Well, they were. And so one of the easiest things uh, to to do is to find out, did it happen? You know, if it didn't happen, that would be considered a a false prophet. But to today, where we're at today, uh, I think that, you know, the question is, who do I trust? Well, I think you can start with the saints and you can start with the teachings of the church. Uh, The catechism uh, of the church gives us that sound teaching um, you, can, uh, you can follow the teachings of the church, our bishops, the Holy, the Holy Father. But when it comes to just anybody out there speaking, you have to know. You need to know who you're listening to, and you need to run that by a test. Is that consistent with the Word of God? Is that consistent with what the church teaches in the, in the, the tradition? And that's important to do. Don't just take what anybody says as hook, you know, take it hook, line, and sinker. That's how we get into so many problems. And there's so many people who are talking about, did you hear this? Did you hear that? Did you hear this and that? You mentioned it earlier, all these side deals. Well, let's start with the Word of God. Let's start with the catechism and what God is saying with us. Certainly the young people are coming to you. Like you mentioned earlier, you said uh, this gender swap. Right. Well, was that a prophet?
0: <laughs> no, <what laughs> you know? I no. not
1: These kids are coming to you with all kinds of things they're hearing on the internet.
0: Right. Well, and I make, it makes me think of this question, especially makes me think of when Jesus says, you know, buy their fruits, you will know them. You know, and so do we allow the Holy Spirit to increase our ability to discern, to sift, you know, it's like this really of the Lord. Like you said, does it resonate with what he said in Scripture, what the tradition tells us? But is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? Is it drawing me closer to Christ, closer to peace and joy, or pulling me away and causing me to be unsettled and dissipated? You know, the Holy Spirit will help us. That's,
1: that's we have to excellent. allow him, mm-hmm. and that's what you do.
0: I hope Literally,
1: so. <laughs> I mean, no, you really yeah. you really do that because I've always said, you know, the Lord leads, the devil drives. Yeah. And the Lord leads us as a shepherd. The devil will drive you and rob you. And, the, you know, Paul talks about the peace that passes all understanding. And that's one of the things I do, too, is I lay that out before the Lord. And I ask Lord, give me a peace about this. And I know enough about my relationship with the Lord where he can give me that peace. I remember one time when I was thinking about a job, and I brought it before the Lord, and I said, Lord, do you want me to do this? It seems like it's in my skill set. You know, it's in my wheelhouse, all of that. Do you want me to do that? And I even had people saying, that would be perfect for you. And I went to prayer, and just no peace, no peace at all. And I've had other situations where it didn't seem to be logical. But a tremendous peace mm-hmm. came. Mm-hmm. As a result, you get to walk on water. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, you know, today you. to talk about not only your work, but about the concept of, of people in exile and what really will help them and bring them out of it. And we'll remember to pray for you and continue to pray for all of all of our friends that are that are watching uh, here today. Let's close in prayer, shall we? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for my sister and the work that she's doing in Chicago in bringing people back to you. I thank you, Lord, for the the beautiful witness that she has given and she has become an example for many of us of what we can do at the local level where we're at. Lord, we all pray right now for all of those who are in exile and the family members of those who are watching who are in exile we pray lord that you would bring them home and reach lord we pray that you would you would bring workers in the vineyard to them uh, to speak to them to love them and to to be a part of bringing them back jesus you can do far more than we could ever ask or think and so we just ask you to bring our kids back to bring our loved ones back and lord in this culture that we're living in may we be lights that shine and not afraid to speak the truth and to tell people the truth of who you are and we know that the truth will set them free. To you be all the glory and we ask for the intercession of our dear mother, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. St. Francis, Pray for us in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.